It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. One morning in February of 2001, I walked in on a conversation my son was having with his stepfather. I could see that the subject was pretty heavy by the looks on their faces. I asked my son what they were talking about, but he was a little hesitant to tell me at first. My husband said, you got to tell your mom about this. He told me about a classmate of his bothering him. He didn't really know this kid who was fairly new to the school. The boy knew my son was in ROTC because he had seen him in the uniform. My son's ROTC class had been building rockets. So this kid began asking my son questions about the materials they were using to blast off the rockets. He wanted to know how he could build a bomb with these materials. My son never shared that information with this kid. It made him very uncomfortable because this boy said that he wanted to pull a columbine. My son expressed that he was afraid that this kid would go after him if we said something, but I reassured him that everything would be okay because we were going to contact the school and the police to get it handled. After the initial arrest and discussion with the suspect, we learned that this 14-year-old child, do you hear me? A 14-year-old child was going to set off a bomb in the school and then shoot everyone as they ran away. He also had a hit list with four names. I was told that my son was on that hit list. My son didn't even know this kid, but because he asked my son questions about ingredients to build a bomb, the kid wanted to eliminate him in the process and not leave a witness behind. I am so grateful that my son had the discussion with Cliff and I that day because things could have turned out so different if he hadn't. Within a week of reporting this incident to the school and to the police, my husband died of cancer. When I look back now, I realize just how lucky we were because I would have lost both my husband and my son within a week. To say that this issue hits home with me is an understatement. School shootings have become an epidemic, and yet we still can't seem to have an honest discussion about what needs to be done to prevent these massacres from happening. Well, today we are having one of those discussions, and I am joined by one of my dear friends who is no stranger to this show, retired police sergeant Steve Wamsley. Steve spent over four decades in law enforcement, working in schools, and was a key member of the Critical Incident Stress Management Team. And uh, we've been having a several hour conversation before we even started this show, Steve. So yeah, I kind of think we're already done. I know it kind of felt like that, but you know, I'm so grateful to finally see you. It's been a long time since we've seen each other. So welcome back to my studio. I, I love being here. I, I have no problem sharing knowledge. So if I have something that'll help, um, I'm all, I'm, I'll help any way I can. 
Well, I've had so, we've had several mutual friends that brought it up to me that you're probably the perfect person to bring in on this discussion because we don't have these discussions. We have people arguing about we need to take guns away, we need to do this, we need to do that, but nobody is actually sitting down and having the real discussions that need to be held. So, I mean, you've had a lot of experience. You worked in the school system for a number of years. So I know you've seen things from all different things between your law enforcement career, between teaching kids in the school system. What are we missing? That's a pretty broad topic. Um, well, I know you I, can run off the, the board I, with this one. I can. You know, I, I used to think there was a lot of politics in law enforcement until I got into education. I did my master's in education through NAU, so I thought I would teach high school when I retired. I didn't know I would do it at the same time, but I was asked to start a class, so I did in North Phoenix, helped write the curriculum for to help kids get into law enforcement because a lot of kids still want law enforcement. And I encourage that still. People tell me they wouldn't tell their kids, but I, I do. Um, still an, an amazing profession. But So when I get into the, to the politics of law enforcement, you know, I hate to use the term liberal or conservative, but, you know, schools are heavily liberal. You know, they're for the, for the last, you know, 40 years, um, they have turned very liberal. And so they're anti-gun, they're anti, kind of anti-police. In fact, after the George Floyd incident, even the city of Tempe turned and said, no, we want to get our SROs out of the schools. And their city council voted unanimously to get their, their officers out of their schools. And we're all looking around going, that's just, that's silly. I mean, um, why would you pull an officer out of a school who's, first of all, there to interact with the students, interact, uh, stop problems that happen eventually? A kid that's having problems or um, has some anger management issues, we talk to them. Um, but they're, they're just a positive influence on a school. Uh, and the other thing is, can they be a deterrent and can they uh, interfere with a, a situation of where a kid is on meds or mentally disturbed and coming in to, to do uh, a lot of damage? Yes, they can. Um, but we do the intervention more than anything with school resource. And we start watching all of this anti-police stuff go on all over. Um, I was in the high school that I was teaching at, and I'll just name it, it was Moon Valley. It was in North Phoenix, the Glendale Union High School District. And when uh, Parkland school shooting happened, and they were just appalled by what occurred. And just, you know, to go in and kill that many students, how could you, how could you do that? And, of course, it hits the high schools, and we talk about it. And uh, like I said, the, the majority of teachers are rather on the liberal side of, of uh, firearms or protection or, you know, they, send, they tend to believe that, you know, if we get rid of the bad guns, that things will go away. And, you know, those of us on the other side, um, law enforcement and protecting, we see it much differently. It's like it doesn't take a, a gun to kill people. Um, there are many ways that we've talked about in law enforcement that we have to protect our schools. Uh, and I don't like to go through them too much because I don't like to give people ideas. Right. Um, so I don't do that. Um, but there are so many ways of of hurting people if you want to. It just takes an evil mind. Um, but while we're in there, one of the subjects and topics came up about arming our teachers. And of course, absolutely, if you are a teacher and you've never been around guns and your mom or dad or grandparents never, you know, you never shot a gun, 
Um, you went through college and didn't use a gun, and you came out and became a teacher. No, you don't want a gun. You don't want to carry a firearm. You're afraid of it. You don't like it. It's a, it's like motorcycles. Somebody said, do you want to ride a motorcycle? Well, no. I, you know, well, you have to be a motorcycle to, to be a teacher. No, you don't. So a lot of this, people think there's an all or nothing topic. We need to arm our teachers. So people want to then go, well, I, I don't want my, I, one of my friends, I'm not a post said, I don't trust teachers with guns. So I'm like, really? I'm a teacher. Would you trust me with a gun? He goes, well, that's different. But I why said, is that different? I'm, I'm a law enforcement officer. I'm also a teacher. We have, you know, we had a program for the longest time called Cops to Classrooms. You know, the city of Phoenix engaged in because we were, you know, a lot of law enforcement, you know, we didn't go through high school or thinking we wanted to be a police officer. We came out and grabbed a husband, a wife, some kids and thought, hey, that's a great career for longevity, for, you know, medical, dental and retirement. It's a beautiful place and you serve your community. Um, so a lot of people didn't go through uh, colleges and stuff to become police officers. They just drifted to those. Uh, they had a friend that, you know, hey, he want to go on a ride along with me. Um, so a lot of our, a, a lot of our, in fact, a couple of my teachers in Moon Valley High School um, couldn't make enough money in education to, to support their families. So then they turned and left education and went to law enforcement. In fact, I recruited a couple of teachers onto the Phoenix Police Department going, how much money do you guys make? And so they left teaching to become to get into law enforcement because of the of the financial aspect of it. Not to mention they pay for your college, high schools, and kind of, a lot of them don't pay for, they want you to get higher education, but they don't pay for it. But in police departments, they want their officers to become educated. So they'll pay for our, they paid for my, the Phoenix Police Department paid for my bachelor's and my master's degree. You know, all, all benefit of the city of Phoenix Police Department. And the teachers are like, they pay for your college? And I'm like, yes. So we have a lot of uh, military in the, and we have a lot of teachers who were law enforcement officers who got into teaching. They only wanted to be policemen for 20 years and they got out, but they're now 40 years old. They're like, I want to be in a classroom. I have several of my friends that went into education and a lot of my friends got masters in education, just like I did. So they get into the school districts. They're very proficient with firearms. They're very comfortable with firearms. They're very comfortable with tactics. So, but here's part of the problem that I see. You know, on a military base, we don't bring in civilians to tell military people how to protect the base. We use the military people that have the tactical experience you know, we, we look at the people with heavy tactical experience and go, hey, how would you protect this military base? You get SEALs, you get special forces, you get guys coming and going, you should have this, you should have spikes, you should have this military. Yes, and even then some of our military bases have been attacked by, because we, we aren't arming our military soldiers in, in our country, which sounds silly to some people, but they don't. You have military, you have police officers, you know, you have the military police, but your average privates and stuff, they're not carrying sidearms on military bases that have been attacked. Um, but when you get into to our education facilities, we have people that are superintendents, principals, deans, that are then tasked with, hey, how do we protect our schools? They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue what keeps a society safe. They don't have a clue how to protect. Uh, in Virginia Tech, um, that kid was mentally ill. He planned it. I've sat in on the briefings of that. 
he planned that. He, he did a two homicides the night before to draw law enforcement away, which was a very small segment of uh, Virginia Tech. They have a very small police department, you know, as most colleges do. They're very small, untrained, unprotected, have very, very limited knowledge and tactics police departments. Um, he, so he did two murders at random the night before to draw the police department away so that they would all be away when he decided to do his, his deed. Um, he came in with, with chains and locks. <clears throat> do, you ever, do you know what the term suicide doors are, bars, the suicide bars yes. on the doors? Mm -hmm. They're the bars that you can chain. So all he did was come in and chain those doors and created a killing field. We couldn't get in. Law enforcement couldn't get in. The SWAT teams couldn't get in. He created an environment because um, it was planned. He, you know, When you're planning something like that and you have a, a devious, evil mind, you can plan a lot. You can pick the days and time you want to do it, the times you want to, uh, when it's best, it's more advantageous. Most of them, you know, they're video gamers, which means uh, when they step up to a video game, they want high body count. They want to, they want to beat the, the, the next guy's score. You know, when you get into these uh, Parkland, uh, Columbine, now the Uvalde, when you dig into all these guys, they all have similar traits. It's not hard to figure out. They have fatherless homes. Um, very little parent parental supervision, violent video games. Um, they're either on some type of SSRI drug for they're mentally unstable. Um, they're getting into the latter teenage years, which psychologists will tell you the bipolar, manic depressive, uh, schizophrenic all manifests in the latter teenage years. It all comes to a crescendo because something happens or they go off their medications and they, they get violent. And you know, yeah, two years before they were wonderful kids. But you have now school systems so like after Parkland, I walked to school with my uh, with my principal at Moon Valley High School. And I said, here are the changes we should make. Here are the changes that we should do in order to make this school safer. And he looked at me like, we don't have the time or the money for that. And it's not, probably not going to happen. It's money just not well spent. So basically you were being dismissed. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I even gave him a book by Colonel Grossman that's talked, there's a book called Stop Teaching Our Kids to Kill, which goes through the violent video games. Congress knows all this. They've given all of the testimony to Congress. Um, <clears throat> but like they say, don't waste a good crisis. So when you have a crisis like that happened in Uvalde, which was absolutely horrendous, um, you have now um, a very big crisis and it invokes a lot of emotion. And everybody wants to talk about it, and they go through the same the same routines, guns and arming teachers, and should we do this and should we do that, and nothing ever happens, because um, it, it, the emotion or another another tragedy will come along in a couple of weeks and will cover it. Um, mistakes were made; they're always made. Police departments aren't perfect; they're going to make mistakes. Officers make mistakes. Um, I can tell you I've lost several of my friends by mistakes that were made that we'd make at work. You know, nobody's perfect. And, you know, training is wonderful, um, but training is very, uh, it has to be ongoing in order for it to stick. You know, a lot of training that we get, uh, I will tell you, as long as I was on the police department, the first half a day of all of our training was training that was done to counter a lawsuit. You know, we had... Uh, in other words, we got sued because of our our carotid neck restraint. So we got we got you know, we get in trouble with nightsticks. We get in trouble with the use of force. So out of lawsuits that come out of the city, then all of a sudden, well, 
you have to promise to give this training to your recruits every year. So the first four or five hours of training are all done for past lawsuits that we have to then go through, given the correct rod and neck restraints and everything that we have to do, we have to make up for lawsuits because we get sued for everything. We get sued if we go in too quickly. We get sued if we don't go in. Uh, we, we didn't have crisis teams before. You know, I was around when Columbine happened. It totally shifted how we viewed a, an active school shooter in law enforcement. We always just waited for the SWAT teams to get there. We aren't tactically sound. We don't have the tactical training. We don't have the ballistic shields. We don't have rifles to penetrate ballistic vests. We aren't trained as, as patrol officers to deal with a lot of those. Uh, and most of the officers have kids in schools and high schools. And so the first kid they got to that was has a round in them, they want to stop and give aid. So Columbine changed us completely with, um, you can't stop at that kid. you got to step over him and keep going towards the shooter. And that's so difficult because your main focus is taking the threat out. But you also, as a first responder, want to take care of that child. It is a quandary for officers. I mean, when we were doing this training, we had officers in tears um, because they were shifting our total focus from yes. You know, the, the Klebold and Harris and Columbine, they had planned that for almost, I, I'm thinking, six months. But they were building bombs. You know, they were video gamers. They were gamers. And Colonel Grossman was very specific about this. Um, you know, these gamers and people think, oh, you know, it's no big deal. They're just, you know, it's a game. It's a, people know the difference between reality and fiction. And it's like, <clears throat> but he uses the, the analogy, which I love, which is like Disneyland. So Disneyland's very good at it. They know when, when uh, you know, Snow White comes out on television or Buzz Lightyear or Mickey Mouse, children that are in what we call the Santa Claus phase under 10, um, you know, when they see things on television, that's very real to them. So when they see Buzz Lightyear or they see, you know, Snow White on television, those characters actually exist in their minds. So when they go to Disneyland and go to Disneyland and Snow White comes out in person with her outfit on and that six-year-old girl with her little Snow White outfit hugs Snow White, they're hugging the same child. They're, I mean, they're hugging the same character that's on their television. They don't know the difference. It's a great marketing tool. Because you're marketing to children. You're marketing to children that, you know, when they see Goofy or Pluto or, you know, they come out and they, oh, my God, that's, you look at the kids' faces. They are, and when they buy the dolls, those dolls are the same ones that are on television. They don't dis discern between the difference. They know. Now, I'm hugging Snow White. She's my princess. She is my everything. And to hug her means everything to them because she sees them on television. So television is real to them. So like Grossman talks about, you turn around and have a kid shooting. Do you know they have actually video games of school shooters? You know, I was really shocked when you initially told me that. I cannot believe that they actually would create video games like right. that. They have them. They have Grand Theft Auto started out, and we, sh we screamed as law enforcement, you are teaching these kids to, to drive around and shoot people on video games. They even had a part in a video game where you, they shoot a police officer um, you kill the police officer in this video game. Um, he's dead. He comes up and dumps a gallon of gas on the police officer. And then while the officer is on fire, they imitate pulling their um, penis out and urinating on the officer while he's on fire. This is a video game. 
So you so take the same thing with Disneyland. When you have children, this is what the research is very clear about. When you take these kids and they are killing people in video games at five, six, seven, and eight, does that mean every kid that does a violent video game and their kids are going to become a shooter? No, it doesn't. You know, they may not be bipolar. They may not be manic depressive. They may have good parental influence. Um, they may not, in their latter teenage years, they may not get into schizophrenia. Um, but they, so it doesn't fit every mold. But when you let kids play these violent video games, they have violent tendencies. So, and killing people, like some of the teachers would comment on some of the books that are written, uh, like in Jonesboro, South Carolina. They pulled the alarm and got all the kids out onto the school field, to the ball field, and started shooting them. You know, and some of these teachers, when they tackle these kids, um, they're like, what are you, what are you doing? And they're like, what? What, am, what are you talking about? They, they're just oblivious. Because, you know, unfortunately in my career, I've had to put bullets in a couple of people. And I will tell you, it's one of the most emotional times of your life. We're trained, you know, uh, through our upbringing, whether, whether you're, I don't care what your religion is or your belief is, the cross-section of the majority of people are like, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill. So when you have people actually putting bullets in human beings, even legitimately so, um, it creates a, a rush of emotion because you are going against what you were taught as children to not hurt your fellow man. And this is very real. So when you have officers that are very spiritual and different faiths that do these, these deeds, when they, when they actually have to put bullets in people, I'm going to tell you, I've been through, I can't tell you how many officers I've been around involved in shootings. And it's a very emotional time. So when you take a child or a teenager who's, who has put bullets and rounds in 15, 20, 30, and they stand there like it doesn't mean anything to them. They're very, they're just kind of null and void. They're numb. It's just, it's doesn't impact them. It tells you what their psychology is. Um, and when you start digging into their basements and their, their video games that they were playing, um, they pretty much desensitized themselves to shooting human beings. So it doesn't affect them like you would, we look at them like, how could you, like this Uvalde, how do you, how do you just put multiple rounds into eight-year-olds? It normalizes it for them. It normalizes it. Ugh. I was telling you before, <clears throat> while we were talking, you know, Peter Piper Pizza had a, over at Metro Center one time, I went in to have dinner with my family, and I walked in and there was a, a drive-by shooting game. In other words, there was a car door. This was, this was an actually manufactured game. So... You, there's two guns in there, so you act like you're sitting in the chair of your front seat of your car, and you hang the gun out your car window, and, and you're shooting the video screen, screen as you're driving down um, the street, and you're shooting people driving. And I'm going, what have we done as a society with our youth um, that, they're, that they're medicating them now? And now we put, uh, we put guns in their hands, and we desensitize killing. And we're shocked that these kids do this. So this starts way before the guns. Um, like I said, there's plenty of ways. Um, I mentioned to you the guy in Nice, Italy, that convinced uh, this was a terrorist attack, but he convinced the officers in Italy that he was uh, making a delivery in a semi, and they let him into the crowd, and he ran over 500 people. You know, killing people is not, does not take guns. Uh, it takes an evil mind. When you take guns out of the hands of people, and this gets into the big NRA deal, but when you, de when you disarm people that can stop them, you know the next day after Uvalde, 
You know, there was a lady who actually um, stopped a man uh, with an AR-15 who came back to shoot up a party. I heard that. <clears throat> and uh, she took him out. But when you go to the schools, I told you, when I went to Moon Valley and I said, these are the things we need to do. I said, first of all, um, I said, you know, if you don't know the makeup of Moon Valley High School, it's an older high school. Love the school. I mean, it's made up of 16, 17 separate buildings. They're brick. They're solid brick. They're solid metal doors. You couldn't get into these rooms if you tried without a key uh, or a blowtorch or something to cut the hinges off. So my, my room was very secured and surrounded by a brick, a thick brick walls. So of the 16 or 17 buildings that you have, I said, one of the things is if somebody pulled the alarm, where do all the kids go? Out in the school. So you dumped all these kids out of their buildings into the, into the football field. So I looked at the principal and I said, so if there's a fire in building sixth and we evacuate building six, why are we evacuating all of the kids all over the rest of the school? He said, well, it's, a, it's a fire code. I said, okay, so if somebody wants to hurt a bunch of children and they pull the fire alarm and all these kids dump out onto the, to the football field, I said, how are you helping? I said, now you've just dumped 2,000 kids out where the fire's got to contend with, we have to contend with. There's, there's fire hoses, parents coming in to pick up their... I said, why don't we leave them in place? If one building is the only one that's affected, why don't we evacuate that one? And he goes, well, he goes, I can't. That's the fire code. So I got a hold of the fire marshal, who happened to be a friend of mine. Um, and I said, we need to change the policy on this. I said, you know, we pull a fire alarm and all the kids dump out. Don't you think people know this? And he goes, Steve, it's just a fire code. It's the way it is. They're not going to change it. I said, so one of the things Grossman talks about in, uh, in his books and his teachings is, you know, when we go into the schools, <clears throat> the carpet's fire retardant, the chairs are fire retardant, the mats on the walls are fire retardant. Uh, we have fire retardant material on the ceilings. We have smoke detectors in every one of the rooms. We have anything that goes in those schools is fire repellent. We have fire extinguishers. We have all these things to stop children from dying in fires in schools, which is awesome. Do you know how many kids have been killed in, in, a, in the United States in the last 50 years in schools in a fire? I would think none. None. Not one. So it's working. I get it. But what are we doing to protect our children from armed gunmen? Apparently nothing. Well, not um, or not enough. Now, a little research will tell you 21% of the schools in Texas have armed teachers. 21%. It's a school district issue. Your school districts can allow teachers to carry if they want to. Doesn't mean you have to. After 9-11, you know, when we had six planes taken, I believe, uh, some of them were actually pilots that got in the cockpit, but some of them were, were rushed. So what did we do after 9-11? We didn't blame the, the box cutters that they used to get on, that they sliced the flight attendants' necks with. We blamed the people that took the planes. So we found out a way to secure the cockpits. They, they strengthened all of the doors. They sold, told the pilots. Which, what are most of the pilots for, for, for uh, the airlines? Former military. 
So not all of them. Some of them came through Embry Riddle. Some of them had private pilot licenses and became pilots. But a lot of them were pilots. And they said, hey, do you want to carry a gun? Yes, I do. So we armed the pilots so that if you came through that cockpit door, you'd get shot. Then we put air marshals. So there was a big push to put air marshals, plain closed air marshals on planes. You didn't know who they were. They were, they were concealed. They looked like every, you know, Joe get on a plane. So they get on the plane, men and women, air marshals. Nobody had a clue who they were. They, I don't know how many, they hired a couple of thousand. They weren't on every plane, but you didn't know which one they were. Right. So when you got on the plane, if you wanted to take that plane, you're like, am I going to get shot? Because is there a guy on campus with a gun or not? Or does, if I get through that cockpit door, if I get through the TSA with my stuff and I get onto the plane and I decide to take that plane, is there an air marshal there? And is the pilot behind that door going to shoot me when I come through the door? How many planes have been taken since 9-11? I don't think we've had any. None. So we did the appropriate thing with thousands of airplanes. We secured them so nobody could get to them again. But when it comes to our children, when it comes to our schools, we're allowing superintendents and, and um, principals who are not trained in tactics. They are not trained in security. They are good at education. They are good at math. They are good at curriculums. They are good at, you know, how we got to meet state standards. Are you, are your, is your class meeting state standards? Are they meeting the curriculum? Are they getting enough exercise? Are they getting the proper food, the proper diet? They are not trained in tactics. They are trained in education. But you're letting superintendents and politicians make decisions they are not qualified to make. When we say we need to secure our schools, they're like, it costs too much money. We just have a referendum here and the, the, was that red for ed and all mm -hmm. the money they gave teachers and all the money that's been poured into it. None of it got poured into it to safety. Cause I will tell you the suggestions that I made for the school to secure the school. They're like, we don't have, you know what? The, you know, the chances of us having a school shooter are slim to none. So I looked at the principal, I said, Okay, let me tell you a little story about Moon Valley. I said, I was what we call a neighborhood enforcement team sergeant uh, for 14 years, which means I was at Cactus Park Precinct. I was an undercover detail attached to the commander. So we answered to the commander, you know, drugs, prostitution, gangs, whatever was burning the neighborhood groups, we, would, we were kind of a separate group and we could go take care of that issue. So uh, the superintendent of the Glendale Union High School District, um, he had my personal cell phone number. I said, if you need, he had eight districts, or he had eight uh, schools, Thunderbird, Moon Valley, Washington, Apollo, Greenway. Um, he had eight schools in the district. So he has thousands of kids, I think 20, 30 some odd thousand high school kids. And I met him at a conference one time. I said, sir, this is what I do. If you need me, here's my personal phone number, my work number, call me if you need something. So just a contact. Well, in 2000, I believe it was seven, um, I get a call at four o'clock in the morning. My cell phone's by the, by the bed. I answer the phone, kind of groggy. He goes, uh, Sergeant Wamsley tells me his name. And I said, yes, sir. How can I help you? He said, well, you told me I could call you if I needed some help. And I said, I'm, I'm all ears. How can I help you? He goes, well, I have a, I have a, one of the girls at my uh, Moon Valley high school 
that said her boyfriend's going to come to the school today and shoot up the school. And I said, how credible is your threat? And he said, well, credible enough for me to call you at 4 o'clock in the morning and wake you up. I said, fair enough. I said, send me his information, his address. Text it to me so I have all of it. I said, and I'll get on it. So I called the rest of my team members uh, out of bed, which they were groggy and really happy. I called at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> I'm sure. I said, gentlemen, go to work. Get your undercover cars. Um, we started our background checks. We started our background check on his house. Got his picture. Uh, we're pretty efficient as a team, as most uh, most of the guys are in the police department. Phoenix Police Department is an amazing is an amazing place with amazing people. Um, so we roll out of bed and get out there, set on his house with undercover cars. He never knew we were there. So we start following his goal. He leaves his house about seven thirty, wearing a hoodie, backpack, just looks like a typical kid going to school. So we get to the park right by the high school, and my, one of my guys called and said, "Boss, are we going to let him get to the school, or are we going to take him out?" I said, stop him before he gets to the school, and uh, let's get to his backpack. Let's see, what he's, let's, let's see, see what's going on. Because you still have to keep in mind that this could be a kid's prank. You know, this could be somebody, you know, just trying to mess with him. You know, it could be a, a high school prank of somebody trying to say, you know, hey, you know, and to get us to harass him. So you got to keep in mind that, you know, of course, he still has rights. Um so we stopped him on the, by the park, right by the high school. And when they got into his backpack, they found a loaded nine millimeter pistol. And I believe if I remember four or five loaded magazines, mm. he had a hit list and he had, um, I believe he had a mask. So wow. he was headed to the school to shoot the school up that day. And we averted it. You didn't hear it in the media. You didn't hear it hit the mainstream media. The school districts don't want that. They don't want that at all. Um, I was also at Moon Valley one time, and I get a call from one of the deans um, who asked me to come to the, to the dean's office. I come into the dean's office, and I said, how can I help you? And he said, well, I have a student in my, my office here who brought a gun to school yesterday. I said, yesterday? I said, why am I here today? Why, why wasn't I here yesterday? He said, well, the, the student, it's cold outside. He picked his jacket up. It's in the classroom. His gun fell out onto the floor of the classroom and scooted across the floor. And every kid in the classroom saw it, including the um, teacher who was um, a um, – the regular teacher wasn't there, so it was substitute. a substitute. So the substitute teacher looks down and sees the gun on the floor and tells the student, hey, you can't have a gun on campus. Now, he goes, I'm sorry. So he goes, pick that gun up, put it back in your coat, and take it home with you. So I looked at the dean. I said, you mean like he came to school to shoot a bunch of kids and we gave him the gun back? And he goes, exactly. So I looked at the kid. I said, where's the gun? And he goes, oh, I got rid of it, officer. Um, that mentality, um, when we start getting into schools that, you know, the Parkland school shooter, if you haven't listened to one of the fathers, he's got a presentation, and I forget the name of it, but... Um, his daughter was killed in Parkland, Florida, and he wanted to know why. And he did all the research. And what it boiled down to is the Obama administration had put together um, things for school districts to follow so we wouldn't have disparaging discipline for uh, children of color. So what they came up with with Browder County, which was the sheriff there, um, had a written policy 
with the school district in Parkland, Florida, that they weren't going to discipline or criminally charge any of the students. So they actually, the, the kid that went and killed all those kids in Parkland, Florida, um, had been in, uh, in police custody over 50 times. Wow. Um, but no police reports were written because there was an agreement between the school district and the police department to not write any police reports. So when you get in, when you start digging, and this, this father actually hired a private investigator, paid him thousands of dollars because he wanted to know why his daughter was killed. It wasn't because of the gun. It was because of policies. And these policies are permeating our schools, grade schools, high schools, where we have a lot of, and I'm, I'm sorry to use the term, liberal mentalities of we aren't going to, it'll be fine. Even if you suggest that they have bear spray, something as simple as bear, teachers carrying bear spray, because most of these kids that come in, if you were to hit them with bear spray, they couldn't function. They couldn't see, they couldn't shoot. But schools won't even let their, their teachers carry any offensive weapons, tasers, bear spray, anything. Moon Valley High School, and I love the guy to death, had a uh, 78-year-old guy out in a, in a, in a um, um, golf cart. And he was the security for you coming into to Moon Valley High School. You could climb over a back fence, it didn't, you could get in that school any way you wanted to. Um, so all, if you wanted to, to hurt kids, you just had to pull the fire alarm. That's all you had to do. It gets them out of this. Because even if you're in a lock, I even asked him a question. I said, let me ask you a question. We're in a lockdown. You know, the police department calls you and says, there's an active shooter. And somebody pulls the fire alarm. What are the kids going to do? He said, they're going to get out of the classrooms and go in the, they're going to go on the football field. I said, even though we have you locked down, I said, do you understand that how your policies are conflicting here? I said, we're more than willing to come in as a police department and help you. We're more than willing to come out and do uh, site assessments. We're more than willing to come out and do an assessment as the experts. Here are some suggestions. But you see, that would cost money. That costs that cost money. It costs money to strengthen doors. It costs money to have, to put things and plans in place to protect children. Um, but aren't our children worth it is the question we should be asking, not what it costs. Sadly, the politics are, and I know this is probably not going to settle well, but you have politicians that take advantage of these crises so they can go to, to Congress the next day and push for gun restrictions. They don't even wait for the children to be removed from the classroom before they start their politics. This is because of guns. When realistically, um, they just came out with a report a couple of days ago that that young man that did the Uvalde shooting was arrested when he was 14 years old because he was threatening he was going to shoot the schools up at 18. So you have a child who's 14 years old who's making severe threats against um, a school to the point that they are going to arrest him. So they've arrested him. Who was it that notified the FBI to keep him from buying a handgun? We have plenty of handgun laws in place. But he was able to buy weapons because nobody made that report. Nobody notified the FBI that he should be on a no-purchase list. Nobody said, hey, he's mentally unstable. The, um, we talked about before the show started, 
the gentleman that was kicked out of the Air Force for being mentally ill. And so they gave him a dishonorable discharge. Most people don't realize if you're, if you're have a um, dishonorable discharge from the military, you're a prohibited possessor. Most people don't know that. I didn't know that. So um, many things make you a prohibited possessor, domestic violence convictions, orders of protection. Um, there are many things that make you a prohibited possessor. You have a felony conviction anywhere. Uh, if you've been deemed um, uh, mentally unfit, um, so there are many things that can make you a prohibited possessor. But one of the things is, again, you're a disorder that you dishonorably discharged, and they discharged him for being a mentally, um, he had mentally disabled. Nobody in the Air Force notified the FBI. So he was able to go buy a firearm, and he killed 50 people in that church. They just settled the lawsuit on that. It's wow. massive. They, the families made a lot of money, but they lost their family members. So, you know, my wife and I were over in Israel, uh, 2018 before the uh, COVID hit. And while we were over there, um, I see these two school buses drive up on a field trip. The first two people to get off the bus were, looked like two probably middle-aged 30-year-old, uh, one male, one female. And they were, they had slung, um, I think they looked like AR-15s that they had or whatever their, their weapon of choice was. And so I kind of strolled over and I looked at them and they're both carrying and they're just happy. The kids are getting off the bus. And I looked at them and I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? I'm from America. And they're like, yeah. I said, are you security for the bus? And they looked at each other and looked at me and go, no, we're teachers. Hmm. I said, you're teachers. They go, yeah, we're, we're teachers. Uh, we're, all the teachers carry when we're on them. Because several years back, the Palestinians had blew up a couple of buses of kids and killed several of them. And they said, that's never going to happen again. So Israel turned around and protected their schools. They don't have kids killed in Israel anymore because they didn't blame the guns. They blamed the, they blamed the terrorists and they blamed the people with the guns and they secured their kids. Um, the most important thing that they have, they, the, the most com important commodity we have as a nation is our children. And they're being used as political pawns they're, they're being left out there saying, well, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, people are making, talking about this teacher that left their door open. And I'm like, you know, that, that doesn't mean a lot to me because um, teachers leave doors open. Just because I leave my front door of my house open doesn't mean I want somebody to come in and shoot me in my house. Yes, we should keep doors secured. But what if it was in between classes? I kept my high school door open between classes. Kids got to get in. Kids got to get out. You know, we haven't heard all of the report and the investigation on the Uvalde thing, and everybody's kind of running and as they normally do and making a lot of assumptions when the investigation's not out. Now, I'll grant you, when we get investigations like Las Vegas and Parkland, and it takes private citizens to, to, to start digging because our own law enforcement agencies and our federal law enforcement agencies, whether it be the FBI, don't tell us the truth or they hedge on their bets or lawsuits are flying because now every kid in that classroom, whether it be Parkland or Columbine is hiring attorneys. Um, they're charging the Parkland uh, school resource officer uh, for not going in when he was told by the major, stand down, don't go in. She was telling him to stage I'm telling you, sometimes we have command staff members who don't know tactics. 
and they make decisions. But we live and die by those decisions. Yes, we're going in. No, we're not going in. And if you go against what your commander says or you lieutenant says, you're liable. So if you have a lieutenant or a commander that's making commands out there saying no because they're conservative and they're like, hey, I, I, I'm th they're making a conservative call. No, just wait. We'll get in. Let's wait till we do it, right? Because if you go in, you lose a couple of people, uh, a couple of kids get killed and during the crossfire, you're going to be held accountable for that. And so many times some of these commanders are making very conservative calls when it comes to children. And we don't know what happened there yet. They're not telling us. So until some of that comes out, um, are there officers that think differently? Yes, I would have gone in. I wouldn't have gone in. Um, I've been through many of these trainings. We used Goldwater High School one time. To, uh, we used kids and, you know, it was summertime, so we used the school for training. We do this a lot. We cross-train with the fire department now that we've never done before on active shooters. But we're a big department. We have a lot of training funds. Not all its smaller agencies. I think Uvalde has, what, 30 officers? And they have Border Patrol. <clears throat> and are they trained on a lot of this? So I heard um, yesterday that they just went through, what, two months ago, they went through active shooter training. And these are the things they were told. Um, but still, you have commanders and lieutenants that are making commands. You have three different agencies that are on, the, on these smaller agencies like that. You have smaller agencies, uh, sheriff's departments that are coming in, border patrol that's coming in, who's in charge? Your radios don't communicate with each other. One of the big pushes that we had after 9-11 was we couldn't communicate. Mm -hmm. We could not talk to the feds, we could not talk to Mesa, we couldn't talk to Peoria. We were on different frequencies, we had different age. So then, so money came out for us to buy these uh, $6,000 radios. And we put repeaters on every, you know, mountains around so we could talk to each other. We still really don't talk to other agencies. It, you know, we have a push of, you know, federal funds that come out to counter this. So, uh, but then where does that money go? Where does it get moved to? Uh, where does the training go? Yes, we have good radios now, but you know, we have interagency capability, but we don't practice that on a regular basis to talk to other agencies. We have interagency. So when you have Border Patrol coming in, that's a federal agency. You have Uvalde Police Department, that's a small agency. You have Sheriff's Departments coming in, they're on separate agents. They can be on separate frequencies. Who's making the commands? Who's in charge? You know, and trust me, when you get commanders and lieutenants and assistant chiefs from different agencies coming in, Everybody wants to be top dog and everybody wants to make a decision. It is chaos. And then you have your line officer standing there to being waiting to be told what to do. Um, and everybody goes, well, you should have just made the decision to go in. You make that decision and you can be cr charged criminally for it and you can be sued for it. Um, not only that, when you go in without the right equipment or without ballistic shields, you can be killed. And I get they're kids. But you also have to realize when we practice this and we go in, where's that shooter standing? In front of the kids. And if you haven't practiced that and you're not, trust me, your average line officer is not a Navy SEAL. Your average uh, line officer is not a SWAT team member. You know, at best we have nine millimeters, at best we have sidearms, uh, at best we have a ballistic shield, at best that will stop handgun rounds, not rifle rounds. So when you go into that classroom and you turn to face 
an AR-15. Those officers making that decision to go in, it's going to cost them their life. Even the ones, the tactical ones that went in, as I understand it, the first three guys that came in with ballistic shields took rounds. But when we start to fire back, where are we shooting at? Towards him, where the kids are. It is a horrible situation to be in. And I know everybody wants to say, I would have done this or I would have done that. But you weren't there. You know, it's hard to make those gut decisions. You know, we, we, we pen medals. I've got the Medal of Valor. I had a shooting where a guy was drunk and stoned and on cocaine and had a sword and came at me and I shot him. And, you know, they wanted to give me the Medal of Valor and, you know, what a heroic thing you did. And, and you know, most instinctive acts like that, when people do heroic things by officers that open up doors and drag people out of burning cars. And I'm going to tell you, we have so the, the, the basic men and women of law enforcement are just spectacular. They are just amazing human beings. Um, well, they run into the fire most of the times when the rest of us are running away. It takes time to train the human mind to go towards gunfire. Right. It is not a normal, you know, the average human being, when the gunshots go off, they run the other direction. Exactly. Look at a mall, look at a, a store. Um, look at LAX when somebody says he's got a gun and hundreds of people are running the other direction. The only people running towards gunfire is law enforcement. And it's because it's a calling. And, you, you know, most people don't realize this statistic, but there's over 900,000 officers in this nation that go to work every day to make sure you're safe. And they run into gunfire and they do. We historically have 150 to 200 officers killed every year, either by motorcycle accidents, car accidents, or ambushing or gunfire. We lose almost 100, and on average, 150 a year. Now, in a height of our hiring, the Phoenix Police Department would test a thousand people, you know, a month that would come in and say, we want to be police officers, before all the anti-police rhetoric started. And out of a thousand people that stepped through our doors that said they wanted to be police officers, we are lucky to hire 1%. That means, 10 to 15 people out of a thousand can enter the academy. Think about that. A thousand people and we can only hire 15, which means their criminal background, their civil background, their driving background, their sexual background, their drug background, their, uh, their actually um, credit history. We don't hire people with bad credit history. You've taken dope in high school, you took dope in college, you touched a 15-year-old when you were 18. There's many things that you took meth, you took, you know, uh, peyote. You, one time, we look at you and go, we cannot use you. Because when we hire you and you have to go before a court, that can become up in your testimony. So we can't hire you. So the cross-section of people we get to hire in law enforcement is 1%. We're one percenters. That's what we are. We're one percenters. So of the 1% of the people who put a badge on, when they start out in law enforcement, what are they? What kind of life experience do they have? What kind of training did they have when they got into the academy? You think many of them have been in fights before? No. Because for people that are fighting and shooting and stuff like that, you know what kind of lives? Those are kind of tough lives. They have a lot of times have done things that don't allow them in our, on our doors. So when I would teach at the academy and I taught out there for about 30 years, I would always ask the, the class, how many people in here have been in a fight before? 
and I might get 10%. How many people in a class have actually fired a handgun before? And I might get 10%. So the people coming into our ranks are community members who want to help their community, but they haven't really been in fights before and they haven't really fired guns before. So what do we have to teach them? Everything. We have to teach, we have to teach them to be, you know, to be tough. Now, when I would teach before, I would teach crisis and stress management, but I would always use the term warrior. You know, we use the term warrior ethos and sheep dogs. You know, law enforcement has a lot of different terminologies. And for the last several years after 2008 with Ferguson and, the, and the, uh, some of the riots and stuff that happened and the anti-police rhetoric that came out, and we were too aggressive and, you know, we shouldn't be doing, we shouldn't be too aggressive. And, um, you know, we did, we were getting away from aggressive law enforcement. They didn't want me to use the term warrior anymore at the academy. We wanted to use the term guardian. It was softer. It was gentler. It was more kind. You know, then we came out with uh, these dancing videos, um, which for the old, my generation, are like, what are we doing? You know, we're out there for a reason. We drive in police cars for a reason. We look for bad people. We drive around looking for that person in the car that shouldn't be there, wrong neighborhood, wrong place, wrong time, stood out. We trained them to find, to seek out evil. And then when they found out, I would always tell my squad, why are you shocked when we find evil? We're out there looking for it. Why are you shocked when you stop a car and your suspicions are up and you walk up to the car and he pulls a gun on you? Why does that shock you? We hunt evil. We do. That's what the thin blue line is. So then all of a sudden, we're now in dancing videos, and we're trying to show people how kind and gentler we are. Community policing, and we're trying to let people not be afraid of us, and we're you know, holding kids up and playing basketball with kids, and it's all well and good. But the basic line is, you know, every person that wears that badge has to have a warrior inside of them. Because when that person's inside that bedroom with a knife, and you're, you're underneath the bed, and you're scared to death because there's somebody in your house, you know who gets in that house? A warrior. Do you know who risks their life to go in even with a ballistic shield? A warrior does. Even if the ballistic shield doesn't work against somebody's weapon that they may have. Doesn't. Doesn't stop it. And you know what? Before we move further, I do want to touch on this only because I know what the audience is. I know what they're going to say. Because, I mean, I'm a gun owner. And I've gotten rid of guns in the past when I felt like I wasn't in the right space of mind to have a gun. But I have since gotten another gun. I have gotten training. And I understand what it is to be responsible. But when you mentioned earlier about them getting in there with the shield, it's not going to help against this rifle. Nope. That's going to be the people out there saying, well, we need to ban that rifle. But again, it's not the weapon. It's the evil. It is the illnesses that are going on. It is the lack of parental paying attention i mean i was a very avid parent my son did pretty much grow up without a dad but i'm not a normal mom because i didn't know how to be one i didn't really have a mom so i just was doing you were, you were a helicopter mom you to, hovered to some degree mm -hmm. but i always did it in a way where i told my son look you have the freedom to be you i'm not going to tell you that you can't do this but i am going to tell you there's consequences that come from these particular things. Those are your choices to make in life, but you need to understand this is my stance on it. This is how I feel. I will always love you as a parent, but I mean, I'm talking about 
sex kids, right? We're going to go off the, the rails just a little bit. But I told them straight up. I said, if you think I'm going to be a babysitter for you while you go out and party after you get some girl pregnant, that's not going to happen. I, I'm doing my time right now with you as a parent. And I'm telling you, I'm not going to tell you not to have sex because we know that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I would tell him, use protection. I don't care what she tells you. You're a birth control baby. I was using birth control and I still had you. So you have to be smart about how we have conversations with our children. But because I took that approach with my son, raising him from the age of two and a half until 14 without a father figure in the house, just me, and then meeting my late husband and him being with us for a year and a half, he felt comfortable enough to come to us. And he didn't come to me first. He went to his stepdad but had that conversation about something he heard that possibly could happen. And he felt comfortable enough, even in the most uncomfortable moment, to have that discussion with us that I don't know how many lives he saved that day. I I really honestly don't know. But again, when I think about it in perspective now, I didn't think about it then, Steve. I didn't think about it in 2001 because within a week, Cliff died. I was dealing with taking care of the financial aspect of my husband dying, taking care of a funeral, taking care of all of this. And then a month later, I'm at a ceremony at the school. They're giving my son an accommodation award for saving lives, for speaking up. I didn't think about that for 20 years until just recently reading the newspaper articles and saying, holy shit, I could have been not only a widow, but I could have lost my child in that same week. But it all goes back to the same thing. You're going to have people that are going to argue with you. If you're saying as a law enforcement official, you're walking in with a shield and you can't even stop this rifle bullet from penetrating and they're going to bitch at you about the guns. And this is what I, everybody gets so off track. They do. And that's, and that's exactly what they're trying to do is because, you know, a lot of people don't understand what we call sheepdogs, the term sheepdogs. Even Grossman talks about, you know, the sheepdogs. And the term and the blue line, people don't know what the thin blue line means. So just a short segue to that is what you're talking about with the guns. A sheepdog, you know, uh, we talked a little bit before. When you have a, a, a farmer and he's got 500 sheep, sheep are not aggressive. They're not mean. They're not angry. They're, all they want to do is graze all day long, eat their grass, and walk around and herd. They're not violent. They don't, they don't go after. They don't kill things. They just eat grass, and they're, they're very docile. And how many, so a farmer basically can only, they might only have one sheepdog to, to herd 500 sheep. Why is that? Because the sheepdog has teeth. It's loud. It barks. Um, and when he runs around, when the, when, the, when the herder says, hey, we want to move these sheep to the southeast pasture, he tells the sheepdog, one sheepdog, move those 500 sheep. Why? Because he's loud. He barks. He bites. He nips them at the heels and makes them move. They're afraid of him. Now, 500 sheep could attack that sheepdog and take him out, but they don't because they're afraid. So the sheepdog, one sheepdog can control 500 people. Look in uh, World War II. How many German soldiers did it take to put thousands of people into to railroad cars? They had guns. So they're, they're, they're mean and scary, and, and, but those thousands of people could have turned at any moment and overrun them. A couple of them would have been shot, but they would have taken those soldiers out. People don't understand their power. And so the same thing with the sheepdog. So 
Sheep don't like sheep dogs. They're loud. They bite. They got teeth. Um, they don't, you know, he's scary. You know, they don't like their sheep dogs at all. Just like police officers. That's why they call us sheep dogs. The average citizen doesn't like police officers. We tell them what you can and can't do. You can and can't speed. You can't yell at your wife. You can't steal. You can't do dope. You can't smoke your joint here. You know, people don't like sheep dogs. They don't. They tell them what you can and can't do. That's why people like when sheep dogs get in trouble. You know, when an officer gets arrested for doing something, people kind of quietly cheer because, oh, we got one over on the sheepdog. Happens all the time. But do you know when those sheepdogs, you know when the sheep like their sheepdogs? When the wolf is at the door. Absolutely. Because you know what the sheepdog has? The sheepdog has the same teeth the wolf does. So you need a sheepdog to defend a wolf. We don't get all of them, but, but that's what the thin blue line is. You know, law enforcement keeps total anarchy away from good people. That's what the blue line's for. We stand on the line in between good and evil. We stand that line and say, not on my watch. That's what we do. Do the wolves come in and get some of them? Yes, they do. And we don't like it. We hate it. Because I'm going to tell you, every officer in that school, every single officer in that school is sitting at home today um, gut-wrenched. It's great to know what we could have done, what we should have done, what we needed to do. You know, we should have known, we should have, we should have. Hindsight's twenty twenty. But when you're in the thick of things, bloods are pumping, your vasoconstriction's hitting, heart rates are pumping, commanders are yelling orders, lieutenants are yelling orders, yes, we're going to, we can, you know, why don't we have, you know, we got to find the key to get in the room. Because I'll tell you, in my room at Moon Valley, you wouldn't have gotten into that room. You wouldn't have. But as a sheepdog in that room with my, you know who, what student and what class felt more protected than any other class in that high school? Mine. You know why? Because I was armed. And you're law enforcement. Yeah. You're trained but, for that. But even common sense. Do you remember a few years ago, and I believe it was a Mesa SWAT team officer, um, I think this was in the 2006, 2007. I don't remember the date, but <clears throat> made headline news in Arizona because this, I think, I believe it was Mesa. Um, he was a SWAT team, which means he's heavily trained, wearing his BDUs, BDU top, patches, gun badges. I mean, he's fully, but he's in his personal car. And he would drop his six, seven-year-old daughter off to school every morning and so he would pull into the parking lot of the school with his uniform. He'd get out of the car, his personal car, in his uniform, with his gun and his badge. He looks like a SWAT team officer. It's the way he, it's the way he goes to work. Gets out of the car, kisses his daughter goodbye, runs her into school, comes out, gets in his car, and drives off. He did this a few times. And a few, I think one of the parents called the principal and complained that he had a gun on campus. And we're all like, what? He's like, well, he, has, he, he can't have a gun on campus. Well, he's a police officer. Yeah, but he can't have a gun on campus. He's, he's not working yet. He's, he's in his personal car. He shouldn't have a gun on him while he's in his personal car on campus because it's against the law. And we're all just beside ourselves because of the mentality that it took to go, okay, so hang on a minute. So... An hour from now when he gets to work and there's an active shooter on campus and you call the police and that guy shows up, now he can be there and defend your school, right? 
And they're like, well, that's different. No, it's not different. He's a police officer. He's a sheepdog. He's, he's on duty all the time. He may not be paid, but wherever police officers are, we're, we're police officers. We can do. So the mentality of, well, it's the gun they didn't like. It's, it was just absolutely. And this went viral. The principal, as I remember correctly, called the, the officer at home and asked him not to come to school in uniform anymore. Don't come to school in your uniform with your gun and your badge because people are offended. We got to stop being offended by police officers. We've just gone through three years after the George Floyd fiasco. We've gone through now anti, we don't want police officers. Get rid of your school resource services. We don't want you to be more aggressive. Police officers are too aggressive. We don't want you to be aggressive. We don't want you to be, if you're too aggressive, we're going to arrest you. If you're not, if you don't do the right thing, we're going to arrest you. If you don't go into the school, we're going to arrest you. If you are, you're too aggressive when you're arresting that guy on the ground, we're going to arrest you. We're going to criminally charge you. We, we dismissed one of our officers in Phoenix because there were two officers at the door and a guy came to the door with a gun in his hand, steps out and confronts the officers. The rear officer shoots him. But because they were able to see a body camera that slowed it down to frame by frame to see that the guy, when he saw it was a police officer, started to give up <clears throat> and was shot by the officer from behind. That's a split second decision. That is real world. That's real time. Had he not shot that guy and he was intending on shooting his partner, his partner would have been dead, and he would have been severely criticized for not taking action. We make life or death split seconds of decisions. I've had to. I had a shooter in a school that I had to shoot. He shot a, my partner in front of me at 12th Street in Utopia, ran into the school and was going to do a, he was going to go into the school with a shotgun. And I, I had to, I got into a shooting in the schoolyard with him. But it was split second decision making. You know, life or death decisions aren't easy to make. And they're made when your blood pressure is pumping, you're in vasoconstriction, which affects your brain, it affects the problem solving, it affects your ability to, to make good decisions. Um, it's easy to, for the Monday morning quarterbacks to come back and say what you should and shouldn't have done. But realistically, um, the person we should be blaming is the kid and the parents. Um, that school should have been secured. That school, that school, we just sent $40 billion to Ukraine. I, okay, that's a political thing. I get it. We always seem to have money for everything but schools. We always seem to have money for, um, we're going to help the opioid crisis. We're going to help mental, we're going to health. We're going to help this. We're going to help um, pick your topic. As long as it's emotional, we have billions of dollars that we can print and hand out and, and help. But when it comes to schools, when you divvy up that money to the school districts, where does it go? That's what people should be asking themselves. Where does it go? When we give you thousands and thousands and, you know, we give it to the superintendents, where does it go? I know it goes to salaries, but I'm going to tell you, I've been in the school districts and this, those teachers are like, you know, we can't hardly, um, now they work nine months out of the year and they work very hard. And I'm, after being in a school district for 12 years, I'm telling you, I love teachers. But I'm going to also tell you, the majority of them are very, very liberal. And they, you know, if you ask them if they wanted to carry a gun, they say, no, well, you don't have to. But if there's, let's say, 10 or 15 teachers out of 300 that are in a school, 
that want to carry guns, that are former law enforcement, former military, former have special training, you know, private investigators have, you know, they've, have, they've shot growing up, they're very comfortable with firearms. And you put 10 or 15 office, or teachers in a school that have firearms, and you put a sign at the front of that school that says, our teachers are armed and are, will defend this classroom, uh, please make good choices. But instead, we put a sign out that says gun-free zone. You know what that tells people? Nobody can stop me. There's no sheepdog in that school. You know, I read something the other day that um, schools have grants that give you the ability to have an SRO, a school resource officer, or you can have counselors, or you can have both. And I would say from my experience, just from what I've heard from people around the country from different districts, they're choosing counselors and not SROs. Yes. And, and they're getting rid of school, school resource officers. And when you brought up the fact that this guy was driving around in a golf cart around the school, in my high school years, 83, 84, and 85, we had a guy by the name of Art. He was not law enforcement, but he took a lot of classes and courses, and he was also able to carry a concealed weapon with his permit and his training. He had done a lot of training and he would drive around our high school in this golf cart. And not only was he there as a security officer, but 99% of the time you would always find him stopping to talk to students, engaging in conversations. And many times I've walked up on his golf cart and I could see somebody crying and it wasn't just girls, it was boys about the troubles they were having at home. Mm -hmm. And they just needed somebody to talk to, some reassurance. He would give them a hug and say, you know, come talk to me anytime. He was one of those people that actually gave a damn, that was not just there providing security. But when I found this out recently that schools have the ability to have a school resource officer on campus that is trained. You and I both know some of these people who have gone from law enforcement to doing that because they wanna help, they wanna do something, they wanna jump into this arena where people are saying, well, what are we gonna do now to protect our kids? Well, shit, we're trying to figure this out. You know, the, and it's a great point, but I will tell you, many agencies don't have the officers to put a school, to put an officer in every school. Um, I will tell you, yes, the, and the school resource officers, the SROs, <clears throat> they're supposed to, um, the school district pays 75% of their salaries. Um, and then the office, and so it's good for the, for the city because, you know, those, those salaries are being paid for by the districts. The problem is having enough officers. And the, also the problem is, is having officers that want to be school resource officers. You know, the average officer that gets into to law enforcement you know, you can watch television, you know, once, you know, when you come out of the academy, you've been trained for six months, you've been with a training officer for six months, you're a year into this, you want to drive around in a police car. You want to drive around, write tickets, you want to chase bad guys, you want to go into family fights, you want to, you want to be in the thick of things, right? Mm -hmm. So the guys that want to be school resource officers are officers who are pretty much community, and not every officer is cut from the same mold. I mean, some officers like to do drunks, some officers like to um, uh, stop drug dealers, and some like to be school resource officers. Not a lot. Because, you know, being a school resource officer, school resource officer you're handling runaways, 
You're handling family fights. You're handling abuse. Where did that bruise come from? How come you're not in school today, Timmy? Um, you know, squabbles. Um, you are there driving around. You're also community relations, letting kids talk to cops that they don't normally get to do other than in bad situations at home. Um, but those officers are taking a lot of reports. I lost my cell phone. I'm a runaway. It's not a very, you know, dynamic job. And you're dealing with a lot of teenagers or grade schools, depending on the age of the kids that they're at. So if you're not a really community-minded person, so here's the problem. When we come out looking for school resource officers, we'll ask, who wants to be a school resource officer? And you might get some volunteers and go, I'll do that job. You know, they've been on for 10 or 15 years, and they're like, I'm ready to slow down and, you know, not be shagging calls all day long and answering, you know, armed robbery calls. And so the school will be a nice change of pace. The problem is, so, so when we run out of those officers that want to fill those spots, then we have to force people in. So now this, well, a lot of people don't know. Then we have to go, okay, so we have five spots we got to fill. So we either get volunteers or we're going to force you by seniority. So we force a kid with one and a half years on that's still a hard charge and wants to drive around Maryvale at 100 miles an hour and chase calls. And he's like, I'm going to do what? Yeah, you're going to go to a school. I don't want to go to a school. So if they don't want to be there, they don't do the job that we want them to do. And so, you know, but we have entire, like, um, I believe it's San Diego. They have an entire bureau of school resource officers. I mean, they hire specifically to have every school has a resource officer. City of Glendale, I think they implemented that a while back. They have a school resource officer in every school. It takes a bite out of their budget, their budget. So they have to go to the city council and go, hey, this is what we want. You know, we want, we want to put us, so if we have, you know, this many grade school, middle schools, we have this many high schools, we want an officer in every one of them. You know, it could, depending on how big Glendale is, that could be 25 or 30 officers. And you have to realize for every, for us, for every 25 officers costs a million dollars a year. To, for our pensions, our, our, our uh, health insurance, pay, uniforms, uniform allowance, pay for education. For every 25 officers, and it's probably more than that now. It used to be a million dollars. It's probably a lot more than that now. And now when you're going to have your basic officers is going from $80,000 a year to $105,000 a year. Um, it's probably going to be uh, every 15 officers is going to cost you a million. So budget for a city has to say, well, for every, you know, 15 officers is going to cost us a million dollars to put kids in a school. But what do you get from that? What's the problem is you can't measure that long-term success. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had 12, 12 classes at Moon Valley of my high school uh, police science class. And I wasn't trying to get officers in law enforcement. There's hundreds of jobs in law enforcement. There's 911, dispatch, police aides, uh, 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 investigators, you know, um, uh, there's uh, secretaries, there's um, crime scene techs, there's all kinds of jobs, detention officers, Department of Corrections. There are all, uh, all kinds of police jobs if you don't want to be a police officer. So my job was to kind of educate them to the careers, the different careers. Um, and out of probably 12 years, at least 400 students, I think I have a little over 20 students on law enforcement. Now, some of them have taken different jobs, but, you know, 20 for 400, that's a pretty good statistic. That is. Um, but 
What's the fallout of that? Them being in my class for, for all year long, listening to stories, police officers, humanizing the badge, letting people know what we were. I would bring in guest speakers, police officers, SWAT teams, motor officers, detectives, homicide detectives. We would go on field trips. By the time those kids were done, I still have a lot of them on my Facebook page. I'm watching them make better choices because they, they saw through me and what we would, when we would go to the jail and I would take my entire high school class down and uh, Arpaio would let us come into the jails. And there was always a 16 year old that was in there for murder at one point or another. So I would take, we would go into the juvenile wing and my kids get to sit and talk to these, these jails. These kids are like, make good choices. Don't do what I did. No, stay away from drugs. Don't don't get in. You know, I used to think my mom and dad were overbearing, and then I ran away from home and got into drugs, and I got into a house and got in trouble and made bad choices, and here I sit. And, you know, several more there of, of the different times we would meet them, they were there for murder. So they're 16 years old, and they're in there for life. And these kids, my, my high school kids are like, oh, my God. And the kid would walk him in and show him his jail cell, you know, um, he had to shower with other kids, you know, what they got to eat. They have a high school in, in, at the county jail. You have to go to high school. Um, but they handcuff you if you're bad. They handcuff you to the desk. Um, and these kids, my kids got a, a real-world education as to making good choices. And my kids would always tell me, this is the best class in high school I've ever taken. Not because necessarily of me or my instructors. Because I want to tell you, I had some just damn good instructors. They cared enough to hold these kids and give them, you know, would give them hugs. And you're right. These kids that come in their childhoods and homes, their homes are horrible. A lot of them, mom's gone, dad's gone, living with grandparents, mom's in prison. Dad died last year. Um, very bad situations. And they're looking for role models. They're looking for mentors. So these school resource officers are more than just a gun on campus. They are mentors, somebody to look up to a hero. You know, Charles Barkley said one time, which I love the man for, basketball and sports heroes, we're not heroes. We're not role models. Michael Jordan is not a role model. You know, um, these sports guys are not role models. He goes, police officers and firefighters and, doc and, and nurses, they're role models. So my kids came through my class, and even though they didn't get into law enforcement, they're making so many good choices because they were, they were exposed to us and the things that can happen when you make bad choices. Um, but you know what Moon Valley got rid of this year? What? Moon Valley got rid of their police and fire science classes. Oh, no. Because of the, because you know what the Glendale Union High School District thought was a good idea? Because um, I'm a Thunderbird graduate. So I, I graduated from Thunderbird in 78. We're the, we're the, we're the Thunderbird chiefs. We've been the Thunderbird Chiefs, you know, since our existence, I think since 75. Um, so we're the, we're the Thunderbird Chiefs. So instead of securing our schools, the Glendale Union High School District decided in the woke community that they are and the liberal environment that they are, um, we need to change the name of the, of the Thunderbird High School Chiefs. It's too offensive. It's woke. So instead of securing your schools and making sure that they're safe, let's just change the name because we don't want to offend anybody. So they changed the Thunderbird Chiefs. They spent a million dollars to change all of the logos, all of the, the, the letters, the stamps, 
changed the signs out front. Now they're the Titans because apparently that was upsetting people. No, it wasn't. But they just wanted to be woke because they're, they have that liberal mentality. But could you have taken that million dollars and used it on an SRO? Could you have used it to strengthen your, your doors a little bit? Could you have used it to get rid of your suicide bars in your schools? But no, you want to get rid of, so they got rid of the school resource. They got rid of the police science program at Moon Valley. I just don't understand that. Neither does anybody else. So one principal or one superintendent gets to make the decision or city council in, in Tempe to get rid of school resource officers. When I can tell you those school resource officers are priceless in a school, they are those, those students, those kids come up to those officers, they'll avert most school shootings because kids will come up and talk to them. Hey, you just should know little, little Timmy over here, he's this. Um, there are more school shootings, but you see, the, the schools won't tell you that either. Nope. Because it makes them look bad because kids have choices now. They can go to whatever choices they want. They can choose this school. They can choose that school. They can take a voucher. So one of the things that the principals and the superintendent district leaders are into are uh, they're into the optics. Well, we don't want to because we want to have a good football team. So we don't want this kid over here making a decision to go to another school because they're afraid this school is dangerous. <clears throat> so they have to limit the amount of crime. This is why they don't call police officers to make police reports. So you have a kid with a gun or a knife or does whatever on campus and they don't want to call you. They don't want to document what the kids did because also that would go on his record and would cause him to, to have a lifelong scar on them so that later on we would know, hey, that kid's a problem. He has the potential of being a very violent student in the future. This is what we've done forever. We've documented behavior. We still have counselors and school counselors and teachers that can mentor them and send them to special counseling. The Parkland shooter, they pulled him out of several schools because he was so violent. The teachers were so scared to have him in their classroom. He was so violent. In the letters that he wrote, he fantasized about killing children. They had the letters. Yet, they sent him to a private school to a one-on-one -on -one teacher for 30 days. And that teacher said, well, I think he's getting better. So they put him back in the classroom in Parkland scooting, shooting. So was it a shock to anybody in that school that he did that? In fact, when you listen to some of the interviews and they said who it was, the kids are like, ah, of all the people, he was the one. Kids know. Kids know who that kid is. They all know who that kid is. That one that could kind of snap on them, that kid that they're always afraid of, that kid that you know, we know is unstable. Um, those kids know who he is, just like your son did with that, with the bomb. We all know who that kid is. And we all talk about that kid, but then we have to get to the point where we breach that wall and go, we have to tell somebody about you. Now we have the catchy phrases now, if you see something, say something. That's fun, uh, it's, it's fine to have that saying, but then when you say something, you know, um, is there going to be any retribution? Um, but we have to get, you know, we, we should have lines of the teachers or the kids can sit in and say, hey, I'm a little worried about John over here. You know, uh, there's no perfect world. Mm -mm. <clears throat> you know, 
I've seen I've seen students who were wonderful kids, wonderful students, good grade point averages in high school and and playing sports, turn around and do some things. You're like, who was it? And you're like, what? You don't know what goes on at home. You don't know what goes on in their minds. You don't know what they've been the victims of. As they say, be careful who you deal with because they're fighting a war inside themselves you know nothing about. Mm -hmm. Some of the most happiest, wonderful kids in my classroom would write a biography to me that I would read it and sit back at my desk and just cry. I'm like, oh my God. And I would bring them in after school or after class and say, we need to talk about this. And you would never, you would never guess that they were the ones that were. You know, I've had some of my students say, you know, you saved my life because I was going to kill myself at the end of the year. Oh. Um, having mentors in school of police officers and firefighters um, and school resource officers, um, kids know. They do know. And they'll come up to those officers. But when you have these city councilmen and, and teachers and um, principals that have a lot of power, and they go, I don't want you here. I don't like the optics of you here. And they get rid of you. It's a lot of power. This is why I think parents are starting to take back their districts, going to school meetings, going to school board meetings, PTA meetings, going to, their, uh, to the board meetings and saying, this is my, my district, not yours, and having their voice be heard. But, there need, but yes, there needs to be funding to change some of these schools and harden them up with doors, um, with um, with things that you can put in schools, there's all kind. There's IT people all over the place that get that have all kinds of inventions to to harden schools up. You probably wouldn't see them much, but they can work. You know, should we should we be able to flip a button and have all the doors close at once and electric electronically lock? Yes, they do it in jails. They do, and we have tax dollars for those. Yep. But if there's if we have a lockdown on a school. If that principal or assistant principal or somebody hits that fire alarm, we have fire alarms that sends everybody on to the, to the football field, but we don't have a button we can push to electronically close and lock every door during a lockdown. We don't. And is there bear spray in that classroom for that teacher to use in case the kid comes through the door? You know, there are things that we can do to, for defense, but again, just like a sheepdog, the reason that we don't talk about the guns is if you don't have a gun, you can't stop a person with a gun. It takes a person with a gun to stop a person with a gun. So if you're going to take guns away from the good people, and that's where we go to, is then they're the only ones that have the guns because they're not obeying the laws. You can't have a gun on campus. You can't kill people. It's against the law. They don't give a shit about that rule. So, so you want to take guns away from the people who could defend it and... Because it's a political move, it's, it makes you look better. Um, you don't want guns on your campus because it looks, oh, oh my God, you have guns on your campus. I'm going to send my kid to another school. No. Most parents are going, hey, I feel comfortable having you on campus. I walked, I, literally, I was in BDUs. My, most of my uniform when I taught at Moon Valley was BDUs and a polo shirt that said Moon Valley Police Science. I had my badge and my gun. And I'd walk across campus. Now, 99% of the students would look at me and go, Sergeant Wamsley, nice to see you. Hey, good morning, Sergeant Wamsley. How are you? Great. I had one student come up to me in the middle of the courtyard. And so, officer, can I talk to you for me? He knew I was an officer. And I said, yeah, what can I do for you? He goes, seriously. He goes, you know you can't have that gun on campus, right? 
And I looked at him, I said, what? And he goes, you know you're not allowed to have, because they've been so conditioned that if they see any gun on campus, it's wrong. This is what we've taught them and trained them. And I'm like, you know I'm a police officer, right? He goes, yes, sir, but you, you still can't. You still can't have a gun on campus. Of course, he was a freshman. I get, I get the whole freshman thing. But he literally was scared that I had a gun on campus and couldn't put two and two together. That if somebody came on a campus with a gun to, to hurt my kids, I'd give my life for them. They, they can't draw that distinction. Um, so there's a mental break in this. And how every politician doesn't get together in Congress the second day this happens. Just like if you remember after 9-11, there wasn't a Democrat or Republican in Congress. There were Americans. Right. That's what they said. We wish we could go back to November 12th. Because, I mean, September 12th, because September 11th was bad. September 12th, there wasn't a Democrat or a Republican in this country. There were just Americans. And they got together and signed bills, signed the Patriot Act. Um, they got together and formed all kinds of bills, passed everything, put out money so they could protect these planes and people and their citizens. Yet we lose 20 children, eight-year-olds, and you don't go back to Congress the next day and say, we need to pass a $10 billion budget to secure every school we have in this country. No. They went and talked about, Democrats want to talk about guns. Um, why don't you pass a bill? They say, well, we need to have an honest discussion about guns. We do. We need to have an honest discussion about just same thing we did with our planes. Arm the teachers that want to be armed. Let them have them if they want to. Make sure they have the adequate training, and they come in with training. You know, the, the one in uh, Sandy Hook, he shot his way into the office because the windows out front were not ballistic. Yep. They were glass. You can shoot through glass. You can have all the locked doors you want to, but if I can shoot through the glass and break it and get in, I'm in. You know, uh, again, if I'm a bad person and I want to get in, I'll get in. I will get in. That's, they plan. They take time to plan these things. So, and they plan in advance. So unless you're going to harden up your, your target and not stop, we, we have a term in law enforcement. It's called soft targets. And, that, and we use that term. They're soft targets, which means you have a sign there that says no guns. That tells me nobody on that campus is going to stop me until 10 minutes later when the cops get there. I am free to do as I want to do. Until, just like Klebold and Harris, I'm free to do what I want to do until the blue suit gun. There's a study out that it's a high percentage, it's in the high 80s, that most of your active shooters, especially in uh, kill killers in schools, by the time we get a blue suit on them, like high 80 percentage of them um, terminate themselves. They shoot themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so... This is why also we step over kids to get to them, because if we can get a blue suit on them or a tan suit or a green suit and they see law enforcement, they're not, they're not brave. They're shooting people without guns. They're shooting sheep. They're shooting sheep in a pen. That's what they're doing. They're shooting people that can't defend themselves. So when we put a blue suit on them and they see a blue suit with a firearm, they, they're cowards. That's all they are is cowards because they can, they, can they can shoot people that can't defend themselves, but they, but they won't stand. They can't fight. So as soon as we get a blue suit on them, they self-terminate. 
which is what we're trying. We're trying to get to them to stop them, either us doing it or them doing it, for them to stop hurting other kids. That's what we do. That's what sheepdogs do. That's what we get in to do. And that's what sheepdogs are for. And sheepdogs have been under fire the last five years. And we're all sitting around going, you keep demonizing the sheepdogs. You keep demonizing the sheepdogs. When that sheepdog gets tired and he says, I'm out. I'm not going to do this anymore. We had 15 people in our academy class that just graduated. 15. We lost 214 police officers in, in December. We can't get this. We can't get these kids because of all the demonization of police officers. We can't get them. And the first time in history, we offered $7,000. City of Glendale is offering $10,000 for you to come to their department. We are offering to pay people's moving expenses. We are offering to pay people to come over and be sheepdogs, to do an honorable profession, to protect their communities. They don't want to. They don't want to. You can do something else. Even kids of our police officers that mom and dad are Phoenix police officers. I can speak to my department, not others. They're telling their kids, don't do this anymore. Nepotism used to be a thing, you know. Right. My mom, my, my, my grandfather was a police officer, Phoenix police officer. My mom and dad are Phoenix police officers. I'm a Phoenix police officer. I can sit, when I was sitting in academy classes, I could pick out the kids of the officers that I worked with. Their kids were in my academy classes. Had some of them in my high school class. They said, hey, Steve, I'm sending you my kid. Make sure, they, make sure they behave themselves. Had several of my officer buddies had kids in my class. And, um, but now they're telling them, don't be cops. We're losing our profession. We're losing sheepdogs. And the more that happens, the more you're going to need firearms because violent crime is going to rise. It's going to spike. It's going to spike big time. It already is spiking in every major city because your police officers are going, why should I go out and stop people? And maybe I stop the wrong person, the wrong color, the wrong person and comes at me with a knife or a gun and I shoot them and there's riots and and, and then people demonize me and for doing what I did and making a split-second decision. It was wrong or it was wrong in the eyes of the community. Uh, so then there's riots and everything, and I get demonized. My family gets uh, persecuted. So why should I do that? How about I just drive around and take a couple of burglar reports and not do my job anymore? That's what's happening. That's what's happening. Sad. So um, it's going to snap. The profession has to come back. Yeah, um, it has to come back. It has to. And we have to find good men and women who are willing to push against that rhetoric and join our ranks and say, I, I want to help my community. And sometimes th that means hurting people. But let me tell you another statistic. Out of the 900,000 officers that go to work every day and have 25 and 30-year careers, what percentage of officers would you say ever actually in their 25 or 30 year careers ever actually pulls their gun out and actually uses it in the line of duty during their entire career? What percentage? It's very minimal from what I understand. 2%. Yeah. So of, of the officers, if you watch television, we do it twice a week, again on Sunday, and go eat pizza. But the, the truth of the matter is only 2% of us in our entire careers ever pull our guns. So now, what the, you know, when I first came on, we, we did building searches all the time. We pull our guns, we get on the ground, 
you know, 99% of the people we point guns at and say, hey, get on the ground. Show me your hands. Get on the ground. Do exactly what we tell them to do. They do. They follow our, well, you're a police officer. We're taught to obey police officers. They get on the ground. They, they bark a little bit. They scream a little bit, but they put their hands behind their back. We arrest them. It's not uncommon. So when that one person says no, 1% out of 99 starts to fight us. What does it tell us about you? You're a criminal. And I, I need to be, pay attention because you could hurt me. So, you know, when, when we're law enforcement and we, and we tell you to do something and they don't do it, it sends a red flag to us. Um, but a very small percentage because really we negotiate a lot. We talk a lot. Hey, dude, I don't want to hurt you. Just put your, put your hands down. Put your hands where I can see them. Look, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. The majority, I don't know of any officer, and I mean, I've been around a lot, I don't know of any officer that enjoyed using deadly force because there's so much that comes with it. It is just overwhelming. Um, it used to be in my, when I first came on the department, we had an officer involved. This is how, this is how we've transitioned. In the early 80s, I had a guy on my squad get in a shooting and shot a guy, I believe, at 24th Street and Thomas, robbing a Circle K, comes out, points a gun at him, and shoots him. He's, the officer shoots the guy, kills him. So it's an officer-involved shooting. Homicide comes out. Internal Affairs comes out. Big investigation. Well, back in the 80s, by the time he was done, they were done with him about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Shooting was early morning, 7.30, 8 o'clock. They were done with him at about 1, 1.30, something like that. So the rest of our, the guys on our squad knew he was downtown being interviewed for the shooting. When they were done with him at 1 o'clock, 1.30, guess what he had to do? Go back to work. Ugh. He came out of the station, cleared on the radio, and said he was available for work. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm 10 8. What we call him, 10 8. And the first radio call she gave him was a subject with a gun call. And we all jumped on it and said, We'll take that, let him rest. Because we knew what he'd been through that day. So in my career, in the first part of my career, we would put officers back on the street the same day after being in a lethal encounter. The same day they went back to work. That's crazy. So now we've gone from that to if you have a line of duty shooting up to 30 days off to let you rest, recover, spend time with your family, you went through a near-death experience. You almost lost your life, or you shouldn't be using your firearm. We, if you want to go to a specialty detail for a couple of you know, weeks or a month, you know, go down to the academy and you know, help teach or something, keep you out of enforcement for at least a month or two months. We'll extend it to two or three just to give that person a chance to come back to work. But in my generation, we didn't do that. So... Tons of difference in my generation and this generation um, when we talk about deadly force. But I'm going to tell you right now, I remember a few years ago, we had 54 officer-involved shootings. And we made this, we were national news because City of Phoenix had more officer-involved shootings than any other department in the nation. And it put us on the map. So they started doing things to us to keep us from making contact with people. And it did happen. And so... Um, we are having more violence right now than I've ever seen against our officers. You have to have a balance. You have to have sheepdogs. But right now our officers are on overtime. Our squads are short. We have two and three officers. We cannibalized 
all of our departments. And we are short people. We need people. And we aren't getting people coming in. They aren't even, a, we lose 10 to 15 officers a month on attrition. Um, but I'll, I, I talk for a lot, but I'm a very pro-police person. Um, this topic spans a lot, but we're going to need, we're going to need sheepdogs. And we need to hire enough to also get into schools. So those people that like to sit in armchair quarterback, what we should or shouldn't have done in those situations, um, I got a message for you. We're hiring. If you're a teacher and you, you want to do better, we're hiring. We are. Go through the police academy. Become a police officer. Help your community. Go to be a school resource officer. I had one of our officers left being a teacher. <laughs> if she was Moon Valley, she left being a teacher. Became a Phoenix police officer. Was on the street for two years, which you have to do. And then went back to the school as a school resource officer. As a police officer. She saw something that she needed to do to make a difference. And yes. that's what they always tell you. If you want to make a difference, shut the fuck up, step up, and make it happen. Yeah. And that's what you have to do. Because what else are we supposed to do? You know, uh, make a difference. And that's what we do. And, that, you know, for my career and all that I've done, and mine's over with. I mean, I've done a lot in my career. And I have no, no regrets. None. I've made a lot of great friends, lost friends. Um, I think there's 27 officers on the wall at our museum that I've lost in my time. Um, very good friends of mine. Um, but now I'm, I tell people, I, I don't, I don't like being 60, but I like being retired. And who could blame you? But thank you for inviting me today. I appreciate it. Uh, you have brought a wealth of information, my friend, and I know this is not going to solve the problem, but again, we're just two voices trying to speak up and say something and try to help do something. And that's the bottom line. When your kids are having trouble, pay attention. When your kids are coming to you and telling you that something's happening or they're hearing things, pay attention. Because as I said in the beginning of this show, I may have lost my husband to cancer that week, but I could have also lost my son. And that would have destroyed me. So I speak out when I can. You know what it's going to take is, it's going to take parents to go to these schools and go, what are you doing to protect my child? <clears throat> and I don't want to hear, um, it's too expensive anymore. Yeah. I want to know, what are you doing? You know, um, question, question them. What are you doing? And... You know, this whole Uvalde thing has evoked a lot of emotion. And, you know, the fact that, you know, the amount of children in the classroom that he got into, um, it was, and, and the officers have to respond to what, yes, part of the law enforcement, you have to respond to whatever crazy nut job is out there. Dope, drugs, violence, um, dropped as a kid. Trauma. Whatever trauma, whatever yeah. whatever you have inside of you or happened to you that's caused you to do this violent, we have to react to it. You know, as, as I always tell people in training, action is always quicker than reaction. Because when you know what you're going to do, someone else has to react to it. So when you come into a school, it's nice to say, well, you should have had a plan. What, are your, what were your plans? Yeah, you should have plans in place. But on the other hand, you know, we plan for these things, but 
you know, a 18-year-old kid coming into a school with an AR-15. Because if it wasn't an AR-15, it'd be something else. It could have been two nine millimeters and him Western shooting and then popping clips out. I mean, it doesn't matter what the weapon is. It doesn't matter what the weapon is. It doesn't matter if the, the weapon is a car, is fire, is... You know, many people forget, you know, when you open up your bottle of water, it's got little tabs on it. Do you know why there's tabs on everything we buy now? Uh -uh. Remember the Tylenol? Oh, yes. The poisoning, the tampering. Yeah. You wanted yeah. to kill his wife. So he went to, because uh, we didn't used to have tabs on all of our, you know, when we opened up vitamins and stuff. So he took Tylenol and opened up, took back. He, those are the capsules, put cyanide in them, put them back, took them back to the store. And uh, he killed several people. Many people. Well, really what he was doing, he killed his wife and made it look like his wife was one of the victims of the Tylenol. So as a result of that, instead of blaming, you know, the guy, we made every manufacturer put, you know, you had to put seal tabs on everything we do now. Milk, water, everything we have has a seal on it. Everything. Because of that Tylenol. Everything came out of the Tylenol. That was one incident. He killed a few people, but good came of it. Because now seals are on everything. If you open up stuff, you got to peel the stuff off the milk. You got to peel the stuff. It's all, it's all sealed so that you know it's safe. So we can do that, but we can't save our children. Absolutely. We can if we want to. Yes. The technology is there. The, the intelligence is there. The training is there. The ability is there. Um, you know, we were putting a, we couldn't even get $6 billion for a wall and, and they wouldn't vote for it for the border. We could take $6 billion. Think of what $6 billion would do for school security. A hell of a lot. We need to work on us a little bit. We have the knowledge. But if you soft, if you harden up those targets, how do I put this tactfully? Then you can't use that crisis for gun control later on. So our kids are worth more than your political stance. That's, per, that's pretty much it right there. So, yeah, because um, I, I mean, I would feel as a politician, if my first response to children being killed was we need to get rid of guns. That's your first response. Shame on you. Shame on you for saying that, because it's not about them, because what it it took guns in Uvalde to stop that kid. It took guns. And you can tell me, well, the cops have, no, I'm telling you, there's going to, there's, you know what they don't broadcast every year? They don't broadcast every year the amount of uh, people that are saved every year by their own firearms. Yeah. They don't, they don't broadcast it. And here's another statistic they don't tell you. When we look at handgun deaths in the, in the, in the nation. So we talk about how many people, because they talk about, oh my God, how many people are killed by firearms? Do you know what they put into the firearms deaths every year that they don't separate? Suicides. Wow. Is that different than a handgun death? Yes, by your own hands. Yes. So they put, they include, hand, Congress does that, and the ATDA, uh, FBI, they put all those statistics. They don't separate them because it's a handgun death. Well, there's a difference between you killing yourself or somebody being shot by a handgun. But if you actually take the suicides out, uh, the number is less than half. Um, but that doesn't make good for statistics to, to go against the, their, your, your handguns. And realistically, mass shootings, um, actually, they came up with mass shooting term 
nobody really has a standard. Is it more than three? Is it more than four? Different companies, different, uh, they use different levels. Um, for the most part, how many, the majority of mass shootings are gang related, are family related, or workplace violence. They aren't random like this one here in Uvalde where he just goes in and kills people at random. So the average mass shootings is I've shot my entire family. I've, you know, shot, um, I'm, I'm upset with my workplace, workplace violence. Um, deaths no less, but they aren't killing at random. They aren't somebody coming in and just shooting the place up. It is a specific target. It's personal. It's personal. So um, the Uvalde one is I get into whatever I can classroom I can get in, and I'm going to do as much damage as I can randomly. There's a difference in mass shootings, but it also depends on how they report those. But if you look in the world, we are number 13th. The United States is 13th in mass shootings. We aren't even in the top 10. And the other countries that are have mass shootings are some of the most heavily redacted gun have gun control than we, than you could have. Um, last weekend or this weekend, Memorial Weekend in Chicago, 21 people shot over the weekend and four people killed in shootings. Do you see anybody scammering for gun control in, in Chicago? No, they have the strictest gun laws of any city in the nation. And they, everybody knows if you go to Chicago, it is the number one murder capital of the world, of the, of the United States. But they have the strictest gun laws of any, of any city. Not working. It's not working. Gun control isn't your answer. Um, there's a lot of things you could do, but in order to protect the kids, Let's get our let's get our politicians to Governor Ducey should be enacting um, laws, asking the federal government for money to harden the schools. How many schools we have in the district? How many schools? How many districts we have in the state? Uh, and what can we do? What's the price tag it takes to and pass a law that allows every teacher that passes certain criteria to allow them to carry firearms? Either pass military. Now I'm a retired law enforcement officer. After the Patriot Act was patriotic. Can't even talk now. The Patriot Act was uh, um, passed after 9-11. There's a thing called LEOSA, Law Enforcement Safety Act, Law Enforcement Officer Safety Act. They passed it because they said, you know what? If you're retired law enforcement and you have, um, um, you, you retired honorably, I have a card in my wallet that says that I can carry in all 50 states. So even California, even the heaviest of liberal states that won't take CCW permits, which I teach, I can carry in all 50 states because I'm a retired law enforcement officer honorably. But I have to get it every year and I have to qualify every year to get that permit. So if I'm going to go to California or New York or Washington and I want to carry, the whole reason for the Patriot Act was we have a lot of retired police officers and military police officers who are heavily trained to combat terrorism. And after 9-11, there was so much emotion after the planes with the terrorists, um, with the Muslim hijackers, that, you know what? Why don't we let our police officers that are current and retired carry in all 50 states? If we put more guns out there, it'll defend our citizens. And it did. But in order for, us to, for me to carry in all 50 states, I have to qualify every year to make sure that I'm proficient and that I can hit my target, fill out the paperwork, send it to DPS. They send me a card that says, I have a card for a year I can carry. 
I can carry anywhere I want to for the most part. I still have to obey signs in federal law. I still have to, if somebody says, I don't want you, they don't want my gun in their restaurant, I have to abide by it. I just don't go to their restaurant. Um, but if you did teachers, do you want to carry? Yes. You got to pass a class. DPS could put on the class. You got to get a card. You have to carry it. If you want to carry a gun in a school, you have to pass a test. You have to go qualify once a year and be proficient with that firearm. And you have to demonstrate that you're proficient with that firearm. And if you abuse that and you bring a gun out in class or show your kids, your privileges are taken, you probably suspended and or fired if you bring that firearm for, for any other reason other than to defend your students. I know a lot of teachers that would carry if they gave them the opportunity. But you've got to over, overwhelm your superintendents and override them by law. That teacher needs to be able to look at that principal and that superintendent and say, I am carrying by state law and you can't stop me. The state law says I can carry a firearm. I'm proficient, here's my card. I can carry on campus as a condition of my employment by state law, and you can't stop me. It's what it's gonna take. Your legislature's gotta do it, and your state, your, your governor has to pass it. But those are things that has to happen. Those are real world discussions to have, and you know, when we have a few teachers uh, shooting people coming on campus to kill them. It'll stop the school shootings. It will stop. Yeah. Because what's the point? You don't know who's armed and who's not. It's no longer a soft target. No. And change your signs at the front saying, our teachers are armed. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been um, one of the most intense conversations and uh, very enlightening because I know I may take flack for covering subject matters like this, but as I told you before we went on the air, I wasn't going to touch this, but I've had probably two dozen people in the last week talk about this, and they're like, we need to say something. So that's what this, plas this platform is for, is to talk openly about it. And whether you like what we said or don't like what we said, that's okay, because that's the way you feel and the way you think. It's just two people talking freely about the situation and what can we do? What do we need to do? Because nobody's doing anything and more kids are getting killed and this just has to stop. The word enough has been everywhere lately on memes across social media. When is enough enough? When we actually start doing things and start talking about the right things. And that's what we're here for. So again, Steve, thank you so much for being thanks here with me today. Me. And uh, guys, as always, thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.